Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mick Inslicht. How you doing, Mickey? I'm doing good. You know, normally I say I'm doing pretty well, but I'm not going to lie. Today is the day before school. It's Labor Day today. And like all academics, I've got, I don't want to say ambivalent because it's not ambivalent. It's a anxious, slightly depressed feeling that tomorrow is back to work. Our long, uh, enjoyable summer is over and I'm not happy about it. Yeah, it's, it's tough. Are you having those stress dreams yet? Do you get those? Uh, I've been having those for a while. The the anxiety dreams, the, the, the worrying about various things. So now, Yoel, you just came back from sunny Hawaii. How was that? Oh, it was so lovely. Uh, we were just talking uh, before we went on air about uh, how many sea turtles I saw, which is you can't like walk around Maui without tripping over a sea turtle. Um, I also, because last time you scolded me that I didn't bring you a present, I, I brought you a gift here. Uh, it's a surprise. Oh, my gosh. It is. Uh, let me see. Whoa. It is also a uh, bottle opener. Uh, and it is of a uh, kind of a sexy lady clothed, fully clothed. I guess this is kind of like a classic Hawaiian uh, female motif. Is that right? Uh, I, I don't know. I, let's let's go with that. Let's say it is. <laughs> a Hawaii can opener. Thank you very much, Joel. You're you're very welcome. I just want to point out that you know you brought me back a, a big wooden penis, and I brought you a sexy lady. So just for what that's worth. Right. That's there, there is some. I think a theme here. The bottle opener is a the theme. I think. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Actually, this reminds me. Um, don't we owe some thanks to Stephen Wong? Uh, Stephen Want is a professor of psychology at Ryerson University here in Toronto, and he attended your tenure party. And he gave us a couple of gifts, didn't he? Geez, yeah, he absolutely did. Um, so he got us uh, a really cool skull bottle opener, and then what? Did, he also got us beers, right? He also got us beers. Yeah. And and for me, man, he like he, he took me aside and kind of said some really nice things about. Uh, some of the podcast episodes and, and my voice in particular, which I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Stephen. About and, your voice? I, I mean, uh, some of the things I've said. So he he was resonating a lot with like the parenting episode and the fact that I was willing to voice uh, ambivalent feelings, at least at the time, about uh, having young children. Um, and he thought that was uh, refreshing. And then as a gift, he bought me, it's amazing. He bought me a pair of socks that are the motif of the dude from the Big Lebowski's sweater. And it's friggin' amazing. I'm just like so thrilled. I mean, I haven't worn socks in about four months, but once I start wearing socks again, I look forward to uh, sporting my dude sweater socks. That's really nice. So thanks so much, Stephen, for all the gifts. We really appreciate it. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Now, uh, just one more thing before we leave the Hawaii topic. Uh, by any chance, did you experience uh, bed bugs? <laughs> Jesus. I thought about bringing up this topic. I, I was going to say whether you've read my recent tweets comparing you to vermin. Comparing me to vermin. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I have not read the tweets, but of course we're referring to this. I mean, I, I, I should, maybe I should feel bad for him, but I don't. So Brett Stevens, a, a prominent columnist and uh, New York Times, a conservative columnist. Um, I guess he, he, he wrote some article that a lot of liberals don't like him and they tweet negative things about him. And one listener who happened to be a professor, a tenured professor, uh, whose name escapes me right now. And he, uh, I guess, referred to Brett Stevens as a bed bug. And apparently the, the tweet like, you know, was antiviral. I mean, nothing happened. He had like nine likes, zero retweets, like it landed with a thud. And that was it. He thought that would be the end of the day. And then I guess what was the next day or a day or two later, Brett Stevens emailed him with a really kind of smarmy email, you know, on the one hand, appearing to be all like above the fray. I invite you to my house and to have a conversation, to meet me and my family. Um, meanwhile, you know, all along there's kind of an implied threat because he's CCing his provost and, um, he, you know, he asked him to call him a bed bug to his face. Um, and it was, I, I, you know, I just, I cannot understand why someone with such a massive following um, who is lectured other people, scolded other people about free speech, would feel, you know, compelled to email someone who tweeted something that uh, no one even listened to. He amplified this thing far, far more than if he just let it be. And it's, it was kind of comical. Yeah. So I, I will toss in here. Uh, Ann Wilson, friend of the show, Ann Wilson had, I think, a nice tweet or two about this. So I think it can both be true that Brett Stevens is a thin-skinned little baby, and that, like, generally, 
comparing people to vermin is not a classy look, right? And a little bit of this like dancing around being like, hey, look at me. I pissed off Brett Stevens. Yeah, you pissed off Brett Stevens with like kind of a shitty thing to post, let's be honest. And something that's sort of, in my opinion, beneath somebody who's a tenured professor or that sounded snobby beneath anybody really i mean why be a dick like right. why celebrate being a dick it's a shitty thing to do the fact that it set him off and made him do some real dumb stuff like okay that's that's an indictment of brett stevens but the original tweet is an indictment of you dude who i don't know him and will never be but i would come to his house for dinner and tell him <laughs> that in person so yes that's right. no so i agree with you i think that's, that's a good nuance point just like ann wilson who yeah friend of the show and she's got such a balanced perspective always um I, you know, I, w- I was hanging out with Paul Bloom a couple of days ago, and he was recalling how he doesn't. You know, he's a very positive person on Twitter. I think he's very rarely critical and and, and uh, people, but he you know, occasionally can be. And he recalled how you know sometimes just the slightest little thing, slightest insults, like it stays with you for like days and days on end, uh, and it hurts you, even though you you should be above it and you should ignore it. It still stings and it still hurts. So. Brett Stevens is no exception to that. So I appreciated that point of view as well. Nonetheless, it was funny. Yeah. Now, most people, I think, would have the self-control to not write the guy an email and CC as provost. Uh, so that's on Brett Stevens. Um, so in the end, I think Brett deleted his Twitter account. So maybe in the end, it'll be for the best. Um, all right. So I've already started into my beer. So I think we should at least uh, talk about it. That's right. Um, so this is actually a gift. Another second. We have had two recently. Uh, so this is our second be- uh, second gifted beer to us. This is gifted to us by a graduate student named Julian Schaefer, who is a graduate student at Penn State University, uh, who is actually a former lab manager of mine at the University of Toronto. And uh, he lives, I guess his parents live in Toronto, so he visits from time to time. Unfortunately, I didn't actually see him this time, but he did drop off some beer. And I just love the, uh, the, the this, this is apparently Julian's favorite beer. Uh, it's from Philadelphia. It's uh, the brewer is called Evil Genius Beer Company, which is a fabulous name. And the beer itself is uh, also a wonderful name. Stacy's Mom's Citra India Pale Ale, uh, which I think is hilarious. Um, it's an explosive aroma of tropical lemon, peach, and mango, a new school American IPA. And uh, you well, it's 7.5% alcohol. Yeah, so I've already pre-committed to drinking only what beer because I'm still pretty jet-lagged, feel out of it. Um, and even this, I think, will will uh, do me pretty good. You know the the song that this is referencing, the Fountains I, of Wayne song? No, I don't. Oh, yeah, this was like a indie rock hit in the, I want to say, like early 2000s. I think we found our break music. Ah, hello. And the name is called? The, 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 the song is called Stacy's Mom. Ah, ah, hilarious. Yeah. Are they from Philadelphia, by chance? Uh, they're from New Jersey. Okay, so Philadelphia sphere of influence. Yeah, Philadelphia adjacent. Yes, all right, yeah. cool. Well, thank you so much, uh, Julian, and uh, cheers, you all. Cheers, and thanks, Julian. Okay, so we have important work to do now, topics to discuss. Yes, we do. So today's going to be a bit of a grab bag episode. Um, uh, I, the, for the main topic, uh, which I think will happen after the break, we're going to be talking about eminence. And we're going to have an impact, or at least I will uh, have an impassioned defense of eminence, and uh, UL might take the uh, the uh, the contra opinion. Uh, we'll just see where we go. Uh, uh, there's some chatter. I've been around for a while now, you know, against eminence, uh, especially in the open science community. So we're going to try to kind of debate this a little bit. But to begin, uh, we I thought we we both thought it would be fun to discuss an article that was written by Matt uh, Huston uh, in Psychology Today, Psychology Today magazine. Um, and the title of the article is 10 Myths About the Mind. Don't believe everything you hear. And it's essentially uh, an article that goes uh, over 10 uh, what are thought to be accepted truths in psychology and, and kind of demystifying them and say these are actually myths. And I'm not sure we'll go through all of them, but I want to say before I begin that um, I should really appreciate this article uh, by Matt because this magazine is actually widely read by clinical psychologists, uh, psychotherapists, uh, uh, social workers, people who uh, are in the helping profession who... Um, are actually, you know, uh, uh, in, you know, actually on the front lines helping people. Um, so it's great that this magazine is, is kind of keeping itself up to date with uh, the latest uh, knowledge in psychology, including, you know, uh, dispelling, uh, uh, you know, ex- formerly accepted wisdom. So I, I really uh, think this it's wonderful. So okay, so there's a few, and again, we're not going to name them all. Um, maybe I'll just kind of name a couple that I kind of stood out for me, and then we'll kind of maybe dig in on one or two, and then we'll maybe nominate some of our own. 
So he starts out with birth orders. The idea here is that uh, if you're firstborn, secondborn, thirdborn, that might affect your personality, um, your IQ, your intelligence. You know, there's some uh, mythology around. You know, firstborn is supposed to be smarter, more conscientious more conscientious, et cetera. So that's one that I, I, I find interesting. Um, one that I bump against regularly is learning styles. This notion that certain people learn, you know, are visual learners or auditory learners, uh, and that they learn best this way. Um, and it turns out that people, you know, there's no evidence that people learn any better with different modalities. Um, one that has gotten a lot of attention uh, and may, might be worth talking about and digging a bit deeper is multiple intelligences. This is a theory put forward by Harvard psychologist um, Howard Gardner, who suggested that um, there's not just one form of, uh, of intelligence, but many, many forms. So intrapersonal intelligence, musical rhythmic intelligence, kinesthetic intelligence, etc. Um, and this one is kind of a, it almost has a... Uh, I don't want to say social justice bent to it, but it, but it has that kind of an ideology of we're all equal. So yes, maybe we can't all be intelligent, but all of us have something to offer, and e each of us might be intelligent in one of or more of these domains. So it's a very attractive theory, um, but it turns out there's very little evidence in support of it. And every time you try to measure these supposedly separable intelligence, they all correlate with one another, which is you know uh, you know suggesting it loads onto a general factor, which is G. Um, uh, another one that I like, and one that actually, when I first uh, learned about it, uh, I, I loved it. And this is the, this kind of 10,000 hour rule, this notion that if you practice any one thing, let's say a sport um, or some sort of academic uh, pursuit for 10,000 hours or a musical instrument, you will become a master. You will master that, whatever it is you're doing, after 10,000 hours of practice. And I think it became urban legend, especially after Malcolm Gladwell popularized it, I think, in his book Outliers, where he suggested that talent actually wasn't that much, that what differentiated, you know, the Mozarts from the world, from the Mickey Inflicts, and I can't play any musical instruments, is not uh, talent, but it's practice. Um, so Mozart practiced a lot more, and it wasn't that he was necessarily talented. Um, it turns out that uh, when people have actually analyzed this, you know, more completely, practice certainly plays a part, but explains... And I have to probably look more closely, but I think it explains something about like a, a third or a quarter of the variance in actual ability. Some people say, some scholars say much, much less than that. And most of it is talent or, um, you know, uh, yes, skill that's not necessarily developed through practice. So that's one I think that is, is worth uh, kind of dispelling, I think. Uh, and then uh, one more that I think is interesting is uh, one on attachment style. And this is this notion that... Uh, Children and their parents, especially their mothers, uh, they, uh, at an early age, they form bonds with their parents or their mothers. And th these bonds might be healthy, they might be secure attach attachments, or they might be less healthy, so they might be anxious, or they might be insecure attachments. And the idea here is that, you know, what happens at an early, early age you, car you, you carry with it for the rest of your life. So if you did not, if you had, let's say, a cold parent who wasn't uh, particularly warm or, or, or um, loving, you might be insecurely attached to your mother. And then you're going to go on to, for all of your adult relationships also having insecure attachments with them as well. It turns out, however, that uh, there might be very little relationship between the kinds of attachment you form as a child and the so-called attachment styles that you have as an adult. Um, which begs the question, why call them attachment styles to begin with? Like, how are they, um, you know, it, it, even the name has its kind of uh, denotes something about this early childhood experience. Um, and it seems to be there's, there's, a, there's a real lack of connection between uh, these two things. You mentioned earlier um, that there's an underlying kind of theme that you see. I uh, kind of tying all these together. And I feel like I see one too. And I, I, I wonder whether we just see the same theme or, or different ones. So one thing that strikes me about all of these examples is that there's some version of them that has to be true. So it has to be true, for example, um, take multiple intelligences, that some people are talented in some domains more so than others, right? So some people are musically gifted um, and some people are Mickey Inslicht, and I, I fall on your side of that spectrum as well, right? Um, for practice, it has to be the case that practice is a necessary ingredient um, in being really good at something. Um, for learning styles, it has to be the case that sometimes for some kids, they learn things better one way than another way, right? And so I think the that is probably part of the reason these things became 
quote unquote myths is they seem sort of reasonable. And that the problem is just overgeneralizing that kind of core of a reasonable idea to the point where it's not reasonable, right? So there's a big difference between saying practice is necessary to practice is all you need. There's a big difference between saying people have aptitudes towards different things and that thing is a quote unquote intelligence. I, I don't even, that's not really clear what that adds actually to um, just some people are better at some things than others. Uh, so I wonder if that's the uh, commonality that you saw there or if it was something else. It was something else, but I, but I actually like that point. Um, uh, and, and let's go back to the 10,000 hour, hour rule because that's a great one. So if I remember correctly from my reading of this, um, I think in some analysis of elite athletes, so these are athletes now at the top of their game, right? Um, the amount of practice only uh, explained about 1% of the variance among elite athletes. But probably what's happening there is that the elite athletes are all practicing, you know, way more than 10,000 hours. So it is certainly true that uh, you need to practice. And it's certainly true that anyone who's elite in any, you know, endeavor, music, sports, academia, has practiced a hell of a lot. Very few, or probably no one has gone, you know, very far with with zero practice. Um, but I think when you, you know, so I had, you know, this is a, a true story. I had um, well, my office mate in graduate school uh, for the first couple of years in graduate school, uh, a guy I liked, but also had some strange uh, tendencies. And uh, he, he eventually did leave graduate school, um, although I think he might have pursued other pursuits in, in, in academia. Um, but he was like convinced by this rule. And he was like, you know, golfers make a ton of money. So what he would do, other than, you know, practicing uh, stats and, 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 and reading as much as he could in, 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 his, in his pursuit in, in academia, he practiced golf nonstop, like all the time, all the time. And he thought that he would become famous and actually make money just by practicing golf nonstop. And I'm sure he got better. I'm sure he's better than I am, who I've played golf maybe twice in my life. Um, but it just seemed from the way he described it that he wasn't making very much progress. And that, you know, clearly, you know, uh, it's not just practice, it's talent plus practice. That's the key. And maybe he didn't have that talent dimension there. So I think you're dispelling this myth is, is a good one. But getting back to your question, some of the underlying, one maybe underlying dimension that I'm seeing in lots of these, and this is maybe kind of a more general, I don't think it's a psychological truth, but I mean, it's a truth we, 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 a lot of us liberals have, egalitarians have in our society, is this notion that we're, we're free to be anything we want to be. If you set your mind to something, you can do it. Just work hard, practice, be diligent, don't give up, and eventually you can accomplish that thing. Um, so that's, you know, that's certainly there for the 10,000 hours of practice, the multiple intelligences. We all have a place in the world. We can be anything we want. Well, I guess there's not anything you want, but you can, um, we all are gifted in some way is the message there. Um, and it's clear that because there are individual differences, um, there are people who are better uh, in certain dimensions uh, of intelligence, uh, or they have you know, different personalities that, uh, that allow them to have more or less success. Um, and it's, it, it's the case that some things are easier for some people than others. Um, and I don't think it's the case that you can be anything you want to be. I mean, I don't think you should let... Uh, uh, things stop you. I think you should try as, as much as you can, but I also don't think we should deny the role for talent, genetics, innate skill, and ability. I think that's uh, that, that's an important thing not to ignore. Yeah, it's interesting that you call that a liberal idea, and I'm I'm not quite so sure about that. It it seems like a very kind of individual focused uh, defense of meritocracy almost, right? So if we pretend that we equalize opportunities, then people are solely responsible in some kind of like moral way for their successes and failures. Whereas if you acknowledge that there's just going to be ability differences between people um, and some are going to have more of an ability to get higher earning jobs than other people... Uh, I think that leads you to a place where you're like, all right, well, there's no intrinsic moral worth to that. I mean, maybe it's socially useful or something, but there's no basis on which you can say like, well, I deserve it, right? So you could justify it on consequentialist grounds of like, yeah, we should let successful people keep X percent of what they make because it motivates them, et cetera. But there's no like moral claim that you have on it because you can say like, yeah, we were born with different abilities and you happen to be born with like more of whatever helps you earn a lot of money. You know, that's not... You didn't, in a deep sense, deserve that. 
No, that's that, that is true. Uh, and this kind of relates to uh, when we talk about privilege, this notion that yeah, you know, some of us are, for whatever reason, luck, genetics, uh, whatever it might be, we have certain uh, characteristics and predispositions that lead us to be more or less successful. It's not, yeah, it's not through our necessarily hard work. So I want to nominate one, uh, one other one, uh, which didn't make this list uh, in terms of uh, myths and psychology. And uh, this uh, relates to, I guess, some of the things we've talked about in past episodes. Um, and this is a, a myth that uh, parenting is incredibly important. This notion that parents have a massive impact on their kids' future outcomes, specifically in terms of intelligence, personality, and um, even uh, health and mental health specifically. And I think this is a, a, a you know this is the, the nurture assumption. This is the the title of a book written by Judith Rich Harris, who sadly uh, passed away I think uh, earlier this year or last year. Um, and she's a, a developmental psychologist, and she dispelled this myth, uh, uh, suggesting that parenting matters a great deal through her analysis of, of twin studies, adoption studies, and, and follow up studies uh, in, 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 uh, by others in, in the same vein. Has suggested that parenting matters remarkably little in the outcome. Of, uh, of children's personalities and IQ. Um, and that what matters, you know, what parents give to their children is their other genes. And that is, you know, typically what, how they influence their kids. Um, now, of course, I think we can take this argument a bit too far. Uh, I think under extreme situations of, you know, uh, situations of neglect, of abuse, uh, parenting does matter. Uh, if you grow up in, a, in, in an abusive household, you're like you're more likely to have problems than uh, than otherwise. Although there is some controversial research uh, suggesting that the effects of even something as severe and repugnant as sexual abuse uh, in, in children might not be as as widespread as we think. Uh, but I'll leave that controversial uh, point aside. Um, uh, so, but parenting, she argues, doesn't matter as much, uh, perhaps uh, other than extreme situations. And this runs totally counter to the, you know, parenting industrial complex that exists with like hundreds and hundreds of books giving you advice about how to be, you know, an attachment parent, for example, um, is very popular now, pa attachment parenting, and all different kinds of advice that changes like from year to year. And, you know, as a, you know... Uh, an informed consumer, you just would not know what to do because there's so much contradictory evidence. And uh, Dan Engber, one of our previous guests and someone who we've mentioned, I think, a few times in, in a couple of episodes uh, recently, um, he wrote a very, I think, clever article a number of years ago uh, that's called uh, Parenting Doesn't Matter. Um, we're all terrified we're going to mess up our kids. The sign says we probably won't have much impact at all. And I think that pretty much sums it up, although with the caveats being these studies are typically done with uh, uh, homogeneous societies like in Norway um, or a middle class, but very homogeneous white societies in, in Minnesota. So there might be some important differences that are missed uh, if we looked at uh, non-weird samples. But nonetheless, I thought that was, that, that was one that was an eye-opener to me. And actually, it's actually one that makes me feel better about things. I, I worry a little bit less about like, all these small little decisions that we make. Um, because I'm like, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm not abusing my kids. They're providing for them as much as the best I can. They're probably going to be all right. Yeah, that's right. Um, that one really resonates with me after having hung out with my uh, sister and uh, brother-in-law and their two kids in Hawaii, where she was telling me about just the immense social pressure that you get, particularly as a mom, to not do, you know, the quote-unquote wrong thing. Um, and in particular, uh, her son, he won't stay in bed. He'll like uh, stay there for a little while and then he'll wake up and he'll get out of his bed and he'll want to come into the room with, with them, with her and her husband. And she's thought about locking the door. And apparently that's something that's like a no-no that'll get you like ostracized. I was like, you know, I don't lock him in there like, you know, for life, but for the, you know, month or whatever that it takes him to unlearn this habit of like getting up and getting into your bed, I don't see that it's a huge problem. But yeah, so apparently it's to that level of, you know, you deviate from the script and uh, you're you're penalized heavily. Oh yeah, absolutely. So um, my sleep was a big issue. So uh, for example, there's a big debate about sleep training and there's this, this notion. So sleep training is essentially around some debate about when you started, maybe around six months of age, you start training your kid to sleep through the night. Um, and you do that by literally like they cry and you just don't go to them. 
Um, you do it, you know, slowly and progressively. So maybe you, you let you let them cry it out for five minutes, and then you go, you soothe them, and then you leave, and then the next time you go in is ten minutes, and you space it out. And in theory, um, they will stop crying within like a week or so. And I, I you know, uh, with my son, two days is all it took of sleep training, and he slept through the night. Um, my daughter, six months of sleep training, and, and it did not work at all. Um, but but nonetheless, there's like so much debate and judgment about what well, you sleep train your kids. You are so cruel in that way. Um, and it turns out that there's not really good evidence for or against it, um, uh, it turns out. So, I mean, if, if, I think if, if a parent needs a good night's sleep and this helps them fall asleep, it's probably a good enough reason as, as any. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I think we've done these psychology myths justice, and I see you're nearly done with your beer. So I think we ought to take a quick break, and then we'll come back and talk about eminence. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. Uh, so the easiest way is probably on Twitter where we're at four beers pod. You can at mention us or DM us. Uh, if you're more an email sort of person, our email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. That will go to both of us. Our website as always is fourbeers.fireside.fm where you can listen to our latest episode and our back catalog and drop us in line there as well if that's more your thing. Uh, if you're enjoying the show, please do rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show. And we've heard that from a few folks now that they actually did find us by just browsing the iTunes categories. So I think that is helpful. Mickey, did I leave anything out? No, I think that's it. I've no, I have noticed that we have received a few more reviews lately. Uh, so yeah, please keep them up. Uh, if you're a listener, uh, this is one way you can give back to us. We don't ask for money. We ask for beer, yes, but uh, no money. Um, but you can uh, review us. Uh, so please do if you can. Wonderful. All right. So um, moving right along, uh, Mickey, you uh, approached me a while ago with this topic saying you you had some thoughts on the idea of eminence. So maybe first it's best to discuss what exactly eminence is, or maybe you can just explain what exactly eminence is and uh, what, uh, what, what the hell you're talking about. Right. So eminence, I looked it up. What does actually eminence mean? Uh, according to the Oxford uh, Dictionary, it is uh, fame or acknowledge superiority within a particular sphere. Uh, second definition, an important or distinguished person. So someone who's eminent is uh, well-known, famous for X. So an eminent scholar would be a famous scholar in, in psychology, for example. And I think all of us know there are a certain key figures in, in our field that are very well-known, they're highly published, um, their work is not, not just they publish a lot, but their work is cited a great deal. They shape and move the field. Um, and typically, the way we respond to eminence is by, well, we like eminent people. We give them awards. We, uh, when they give talks, many of us flock to, to their talks. When they have papers, they're more widely read than papers by less eminent people. Um, so I think we all know, you know, an eminent person when we see one. They're just kind of, they're, 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 they're the kings and queens of, of a field. Wow, that uh, that sounds pretty great. Uh, so you're for that, obviously. I'm for the monarchy. Yes. Right, right. So who could be against such a thing? <laughs> okay, so uh, the the kind of the the impetus for this uh, my let's say passion defense of eminence, uh, as if it needed uh, defending, is that uh, it's in our little world uh, of open science and open science Twitter. Um, the kind of the, the, the people who are agitating about the replication crisis, there seems to be uh, an anti-eminence streak. This notion that we should forget about eminence, forget about fame, forget about prestige. And we should also, uh, and, uh, related to this, is also we should maybe forget about experience. 
uh, and that someone who is a full professor with 20, 30 years of experience has as much to say or as little to say as someone who, uh, you know, just started out in the field. So early career researchers are kind of elevated in this in our little world um, uh, and uh, eminent people are lowered uh, to some extent. And uh, the person who I think most, I think, uh, well known for, for, for kind of bringing this point of view up is some, a friend of mine, Samin Vizier, uh, who's a friend and someone who I also admire a great deal. I think she's wise. Uh, I actually remember introducing her at a talk here at the University of Toronto called her wise. Um, and I feel it's true. And she wrote an article a number of years ago now. It ended up being, at first it was just a preprint, and then it got picked up by Nature, uh, and then the title of the article was published in uh, 2017. It's called Our Obsession with Eminence Warps Research. And the subtitle here is Many Decisions About Whose Work is Recognized or at Least Partially Arbitrary, and We Should Acknowledge That, uh, argues Samina Vizier. Um, so uh, I think uh, Samin's piece, uh, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes, and I think it's, it's worth reading. Uh, I think she makes lots of really, really interesting points, and I agree with many of them. Um, but I also, I think, disagree uh, to some extent as well. And I, and to some extent, this I just wanted to think for for a little bit about you know why I react and and, and have different uh, difference of opinion here uh, from from Samin. So I, my, my understanding of Samin's argument is um, that to some extent we uh, grant too much uh, credit to, to those with eminence. We are easier them in, in, in the review process. Uh, we tend to think they're right more. Uh, we kind of uh, aren't as critically evaluative of their work as we ought to be. Um, and I think there I completely agree. I mean, I think we should be, we should be evaluating claims on a claim by claim basis and the, you know, regardless of who the person is saying it. Um, but that being said, I also think there's a selection. We do need selection. We, you know, there's so much information out there that uh, there, there has to be some filter. And eminence is not a terrible filter to go by. Um, so, and I'll explain why, why I mean that in a minute. Um, and then she goes on saying that, you know, most certainly uh, eminent scientists or many eminent scientists are really, really good at what they do. Uh, but it's also true of lots of less eminent people, non-eminent people who are excellent at their jobs and um, uh, deserve recognition as well. And I think that's also true. There's tons of people who are doing incredible work. Uh, and in a perfect world, we would all be recognized. But at the same time, I do think there are some people who contribute more and contribute better. And I think it makes sense to recognize them a bit more. Um, judgments of eminence are incredibly hard uh, 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 to make. So, uh, you know, she argues that it's actually incredibly surprising how little consensus there is sometimes with the judgments of quality of, of, of research work. And I think she makes, I think, a really clear distinction, a good distinction between it's relatively easy to judge something that's crap. Like if you say something that's not very good, like it's pretty, it's pretty easy to, to, to separate the, the, the bad from the good. But among the good, there still needs to be selection even among the good. And are we good at, at selecting uh, the, the works or the people um, among that category that have already passed the first uh, 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 felt, uh, you know, a selection. And there again, I agree. I think it's, it's, it's quite difficult to make uh, judgments of quality. Um, although I'm not sure I share her pessimism about, about how hard it is. So I've had, uh, you've, you've, uh, you and I have been in, you know, a number of, of uh, search committees. And I find it surprising how we, all of us start out, starts out with a, a list of 200 people. Um, and we all end up you know, with, you, you know, massively overlapping short lists that consist of five people. And typically, you know, those five have been nominated by numerous people in, in the search committee. So I, I, you know, while I agree it's hard, it's noisy, I don't think it's impossible. Um, and then uh, she, you know, she, uh, she suggests that we should be evaluating things uh, on a point-by-point basis. We should read the paper, read, evaluate claims on their own merit. Again, I agree. I think that's absolutely true, although very difficult in, in, in reality because there's so much information. Uh, and then finally, she ends with a sentence that when I first read this a, year, a couple of years ago, I loved it. And she said, let's focus less on eminence and more on its less glamorous cousin, rigor. And I read that. I'm like, yes, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. The more I thought about it, the more I realized that eminence and rigor are orthogonal constructs. They're, they might be independent constructs. And in fact, there can be people who are eminent because they are rigorous. 
In fact, I would say Samin Vizier is just that very person. She's well-known. Uh, she's prestigious. And, and I think rightfully so. She deserves it. Um, and she's prestigious and well-known and eminent because she's rigorous. And because of her other various qualities, not just because she's rigorous, but that's one of the qualities. So I, I think that's a false uh, kind of a dichotomy there. So I'm not sure. You, you also read the article, so maybe I, I missed some points. Uh, what do you think of that summary? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a reasonable summary of um, what she was saying. So what part would you say you disagree with the most? Um, the part that I disagree with the most is I think... Maybe it was the, the, the point that I, at least in my list here, is second, and that is the idea that um, lots of good work is, is happening by lots of, lots of people. Um, and those people should be recognized too. And I think that's true. But I think hidden in that point is maybe a reality, and this relates to our, you know, uh, our segment before the break, is that there are individual differences, that truly there are differences, and that... Um, for you know, by by dint of hard work, uh, genetics, luck, whatever whatever you want to call it, there are some people who are smarter, more creative, more organized, harder working, more industrious. Um, they're better speakers, better writers. They're better at mathematics, which allows them to be better at stats. It's really critical for our field. Um, and there are, there are differences in all these things. And here's the fucked up part. Here here's the part where like gets someone like me upset. Like some people are good at all those things. Okay, the super annoying, like amazing people who are good at all those things. And for me, I would rather listen to those people. I would rather read an article by them. I'd rather go to their talks. And I think we need to recognize that there are differences. I mean, it, it, my defense is as simple as that, um, that some people are good at all these things. And because we are in a, you know, more and more so, we, we have this oversaturated market of ideas where, you know, the, the biggest commodity is attention, right? The thing that, that marketers and, and people are trying to get is your attention. It's impossible to pay attention to everything and to everybody, even in one small area. Okay, so I, I, I work in, in the field of self-regulation. I cannot know every article because there's probably, you know, uh, every day, there are probably many articles published every day on this topic, and I can't keep up with it. So how do I figure out what to read, Right. Well, I'm more likely to read things by people that are eminent. I'm more likely to, to read things by, by, you know, in journals that are eminent. I'm more likely to read things that eminent people themselves recommend. And I agree that that is, the, you know, um, I'm missing out a lot of good stuff. I'm missing out a lot of, lot of people who are contributing, you know, immensely good stuff. Um, but I'm not sure how else to do it. I'm not sure how I could pay attention to what is important. So, you know, there are other markers of, uh, that, that will capture my attention. I try to like just figure out what to read it. And, and eminence, I think, is, is, is one. I also would say, and related to this, is experience is one as well. So someone who's got 20 years experience working in an area uh, and doing a good job working in that area, I think it has more wisdom, or at least on average, all else being equal, and I know I'm going to, people are going to make some enemies about what I'm about to say, has more, it has better things to say and things that I want to hear more than someone who's been working in an area for 20 days, right? Um, so I think someone who's been working a long time has probably, you know, a, a broader scope on things and has thought through more things than someone who's just started. Um, so that means we're going to be uh, having a bit more attention to the senior scholars in our field than the junior scholars in our field or the tenured professors than the graduate students. And there's an unfairness there, right? I mean, these are everyone's trying to do good work and we're all trying to, uh, to say something important and we're all trying to do good work, period. Um, but as a heuristic, uh, you know, it makes sense for me to select what I read and what I pay attention to based on some of these cues. I think some of the skepticism of seniority and experience comes from the replication crisis and the feeling of like, look, you quote unquote, you know, experienced wise people drove us into this ditch. Why should I listen to what you have to say? That's an excellent point. And, and I think um, that is a really, really important exception. Okay. So when a field experiences a trauma, when a field experiences a revolution, experience actually hurts you. Right. So I remember now, this is what, when was it, 2015, um, uh, Roy Baumacher wrote an article, uh, in, it was a journal of experimental social psychology, where he was talking about the replication crisis. And, and you know, 
what he was suggesting is small samples are better than big samples, that flair is important, all these various things that he said. And like, I mean, you could probably go through every single uh, 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 item on his list and say, that's a bad idea, that's a bad idea, that's a bad idea. But that's what he learned based on his own experience. But, he, but, but the field has turned upside down now. And what he learned, we realized, was wrong or bad. It led to poor inferences. And here's a case where eminence or experience, uh, uh, so, if you will, um, hurts you, right? But the, cool, the, 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 the interesting thing about eminence and prestige is that it can change, okay? Eminence and prestige is not bestowed by the person with the prestige and the person with the eminence. It's bestowed by the people looking at them, right? And when norms change, who is eminent and what is eminent also changes, Right? So Samin the Vizier is now considered eminent because she is seen as being wise and intelligent and kind of uh, having um, a strong moral compass about these issues. And as a result, she's gained status because of it. And she is now a model for others to follow. And I like that. You know, I look at her and I see her as a model and I try to emulate her. And I'm sure there's lots of other junior scholars trying to emulate her as well. Um, and I don't think that's a bad thing. So now Roy Baumeister is losing an eminence and she is rising in eminence. And so is, you know, someone like Brian Nosek um, and Sanjay Srivastava, a lot of you know, our friends and, and kind of uh, colleagues in the, in the replication crisis or the open science movement, I should say. Um, so eminence is flexible and changes. Uh, and, and, but you're right, experience does hurt you when, um, uh, when you have this kind of trauma and, and uh, big change in the field, revolution in the field. So you were talking earlier about using eminence as sort of a prior in making what I would think of as kind of personal decisions about which talk am I going to go to, which paper am I going to read, and so on. And I wonder what you think about on kind of an organizational level. Like, do you think that we should be giving, for example, awards to senior people to recognize their outstanding contributions? The argument against it would be like, look, they're recognized already. Like, you don't need to give Dan Gilbert another award. It's like this thing where, like, if you're a celebrity, they give you free shit all the time. It's like, they're, those fuckers are rich. They can buy their own watches. And instead, it's like, you just get more. And it, isn't there an argument that it, it's just kind of unnecessary to give senior, well-known people yet another award? And that our efforts, like, as a society, let's say, could be better spent trying to recognize people who maybe are lower profile? Yeah, that's a really good uh, point. And this is, this you know, what you're talking about is what sometimes people call uh, the Matthew effect or the rich get richer effect. So it's been known, it's, it's long known that um, the more, you know, if you win an award, you increase the chances of winning a future award. Okay. And if you publish in a high, high prestige journal, you're, li you're more likely to publish in a high prestige journal in the future. Um, but let, let's stick to the award part there. I'm not sure. I'm not sure uh, if that's necessary. You're right. Dan Gilbert is already recognized. He doesn't, need to, he doesn't need an award, another plaque on his wall. Probably doesn't really help or hurt him. Um, but let's think about, you know, what are the, the, the functions of prestige again is that it sets the norm for a group. And let's assume the basis upon which we're bestowing prestige is, a, is one we agree with. It's a wise one. Right. So, again, if we're in a post-replication crisis world, the people who are granted prestige are doing the good, rigorous work. So someone like Brent Roberts, another one of our previous guests, that dude is awesome. Right. He's so smart and he's, he thinks about things just the right way. Like I look at his work and I want to copy him. Right. And I want to do as, you know, uh, I, I want to. Yeah, I want to be like Brent Roberts a little bit. Um, and if getting an award gets him more attention that I think he deserves and gets him, quote-unquote, more followers, more people who want to emulate him, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Um, at worst, the award is unnecessary. Um, I don't think it's a zero-sum game. I don't think just because we're bestowing awards on senior people, we can't bestow awards on junior people. I, I mean, if, any, if anything, I think our society, societies um, are so early career research focused. We have so many awards for junior people, for graduate students, very few awards uh, for the more senior people. We have like one lifetime achievement award essentially in each one of our societies, where it seems like a lot of our societies have multiple of these early career awards by, that go by multiple different names. So is it hurt? I don't know if it hurts. Yeah, so I think with the early career awards, then you get into the problem that uh, I think Samin described really well of 
this is just a really noisy process and picking a winner there. Uh, I, I think with lifetime achievement, you're on a more solid foundation of saying, yeah, over the course of like 30 years, this person has really shown themselves to be influential. I, I think that those decisions are actually not that difficult to make. But if you're trying to pick some people who are like within five years of PhD, let's say, and say, which one is the most excellent of these? Uh, I think she's saying you might as well throw darts, right? You might as well pick a group of reasonably qualified people and select at random, and you'd be equally good at picking the eventual winners where like that is defined as, you know, longer term, are they going to be successful or not? So these early career awards might be, I guess, actively harmful. Right. So you were saying the late career awards, well, maybe they're sort of dumb, but they don't do much harm here. These might actually be harmful in that we're fooling ourselves into thinking that we can spot true excellence when really we're just responding to noise. Uh, that's interesting. So, I mean, I don't necessarily disagree. So I, 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 do, I do think and let me just say one thing which I haven't said. I should have said it earlier. I do think this is a noisy system. I think the evaluation process is difficult. You know, I, I suggested earlier, you know, in a search committee, there's a, there's a surprising amount of consensus, but there's also a non-surprising amount of disagreement, right? So it's not as if it's a perfect process by any stretch. And, and, and it's noisy. And, and, you know, if you're just so lucky to be the recipient of positive noise early in your career, you're more likely to have that carry forward with you and these positive feedback loops that continue. And that's a bad part of the system. I, I agree with you 100% there. Um, but it's interesting that you said that because, I mean, if anything, you know, it seems like our societies are, are trying to, we have these early career awards because we want to encourage younger people to, to, to stay in the field, uh, uh, to kind of be excited by the field, I'm guessing, or to reward them. Um, it is noisy. So do you think we should not have them at all? Yeah. So where I'm going with this is I've never won one of these awards <laughs> in my life. And I think we should just get rid of them all. I, I really don't. I really don't know what the rationale is, honestly. Like, are really are are the t top researchers going to be more motivated to research because they've won an award? I think it's just a way of like making it easier for people who um, do well at point A to then do well again at point B. Because as you say, awards beget more awards. Right. So you think awards for early career really is, is because there's so many more deserving non-winners um, that we shouldn't bother naming winners. Yeah. You know, I might like something like 10 excellent papers this year or something. I don't know. 10 is arbitrary, but like in keeping with the spirit of like, just picking one winner out of a group of qualified people is just inherently so noisy that we shouldn't even try. Okay. So what about this? Uh, so that's the modal ways, you know, you, you have a very small number of winners. So like with the, the, the Sage uh, Junior Scholar Award is our big award in the Society for Personality and Social Psychology. Right. And don't get me wrong. They pick great people, right? It's just like, there's a pool of great people and they pick some of them. Right. And then they pick what, five or so a year. A different model would be uh, the Association for Psychological Science, APS. They have what's called the Rising Star Award. And it didn't start out this way, but now it's like they have like, I, th I think it's like a hundred people. They name a huge number of people. So... Yeah, I don't really like the star terminology. I think that's kind of dumb. But yeah, that seems like more in line with what I was saying. Um, pick people who seem to have done good work recently. Okay. That seems reasonable. Okay. So at the early career, you think it's really, really hard to pick? Um, and I then, think so. And maybe, yeah. maybe not maybe not have those. Or it's, it, it, to identify one, you know, someone who's marginally, not even better, you know, lucky, luckier, um, and to, to bestow upon him or her an award doesn't seem to make sense. Yeah, that's right. Um and it's combined with a general skepticism of, I'm not sure what awards are for, actually. Right. Um, okay, this is a good point. I mean, I, I think this is slightly uh, tangential to the point of uh, my defense of eminence, because uh, the award, the point about awards is like, let's bestow now an honorific on someone who's eminent. Okay. But typically, someone who's eminent, is, there's, there's no committee, you know, naming Brett Roberts as, as eminent scholar. Right. No one has appointed Samin Vizier as an eminent scholar. She just is. We all have collectively decided this is someone important enough that we want to pay attention to. Right. Um, so I think it's a slightly orthogonal point. The uh, the point about awards. Yeah. I, you know, I, I took her argument to be in part. Look, we all have this uh, heuristic of the person who's well-known and respected is going to have better, smarter things to say. And that heuristic isn't entirely wrong, 
but it can often be overgeneralized. And so what we should be trying to do is to work against that overgeneralization, not to make, not to encourage people to apply it. Right. Um, I don't think that I don't want to put words in her mouth, but I don't think that she would say that reputation is entirely arbitrary. I think people's reputations, as you say, are, are based in part on what they've actually done. Um, and it, it, the, the issue, I think, is that we expect the person with a stellar reputation to always have the smartest thing to say. And I think that, you know, anybody who's gotten and seen a talk from a really senior superstar person and that person shows up and like obviously didn't prepare and is totally phoning it in and the talk is a huge disappointment. Like I've been in that situation like quite a few times. Right. And I think that just shows the problems with overgeneralizing that heuristic. You would do better to go see the talk by the early career person who's really going to bring their A game, don't you think? Sure. No, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think the point of evaluating, be it truth claims, papers, people um, on a case-by-case -case basis, I think that's, that's true. In a perfect world, we, we should be doing that. Absolutely. Uh, but again, because of this reality constraint, this constraint of I don't have enough time, enough attention to pay. So I've got to make, I've got to select based on something. And I'm suggesting just like, you know, we know from Lee Justin's work that stereotypes might be gross overgeneralizations, but there is some accuracy. Maybe there's even a lot of accuracy in some stereotypes. It's not a terrible, you know, basis upon which to make a judgment. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that, you know, personally, I have ideas about the kind of work that researchers do. If I see something from Samin or one of her students, uh, I will assume that it's methodologically rigorous. And I, I think that's a pretty reasonable assumption, right? And I, I stand by that. Um, and on the flip side, there's certain people who I won't name where I see their names on a paper. I'm like, ugh, you know, a lot of, probably a lot of p-values close to 0.05. Um, and it, there's likewise, and this gets a little tougher because these things are harder to evaluate, um, but there's people who I think do really interesting creative work um, where when I see one of their papers, I'm like, ah, oh, I bet this is going to be something I'm interested in. And then there's people who do work that interests me less. I'll just put it in a personal way. So like, you know, maybe it's great for somebody else. But for me, I know that it's something that's most likely not going to pique my interest as much. I don't really think there's anything wrong with that. Either. Yeah, no, I, I agree with all of that, that we have. Yeah, that we've been focusing, focusing on the positive reputation, and it works in the reverse as well. There are people who, yeah, I mean, I bet you were thinking of the same people uh, who just like, you know, I'm just, you know, yeah, I got a headline. And, and like, and this person, there are some people that I know that are eminent in the old school way. They're eminent by the old standards of evaluation. Um, yet, the minute I see any their, their name on any paper, I'm going to be, this paper is probably not going to be good. It's not going to be rigorous. Um, and that's because they were rewarded by the old way of doing things and not maybe uh, down with the new way of thinking about things. Right. So there's one other point that I'd like to bring up, um, which is sort of it's uh, building off of something you said where where you said, well, one thing that awards do is they communicate like as a group what we value. And there's an argument that's been made that by designating awards for individuals or at most, you know, the few authors on the average paper that we're sending the wrong signal about what kind of work it is that we're doing or the nature of the work that we're doing, that science needs to be more team focused and that by focusing on individuals, we're sending exactly the wrong message. So that if anything, we should be giving awards to teams who are doing something interesting rather than the one individual who did something interesting. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I, I, I think I agree with that. Um, it would be more fruitful to evaluate a paper, for example, because it's tangible. You can look at it. You can evaluate it in many, many different ways. But a person, there's essentially an infinite number of ways to evaluate that person. So it becomes murky. But on the flip side, what if you have someone, and there are people like this, God damn them, um, who they are end up being on consistently on so many good papers with different teams each and every single time. And their name is on it and it's better than average. It's much better than average. And they have this throughout their whole career. Uh, 
there are people like that. And I don't think it's necessarily wrong to recognize them. I don't think it's wrong to celebrate their, their accomplishments. Because again, they act as role models. They act as, you know, like, you know, this is the paragon of our field. This is like, you know, one of many people we think, you know, young people should be, you know, emulating. Um, and I don't think that's terribly wrong, but, but maybe there are, maybe there are fewer of those kinds of people than we think. And maybe truly it's, it, it's the papers that matter. And, you know, listen, if you're a person who ends up being recognized in your lifetime for five papers, that that's enough. That, that already says that you're, you know, you're hot shit. Um, but yeah, maybe, maybe evaluation on a paper by paper basis, you know, makes sense. I, I, I could, I could certainly get behind that. Yeah, that seems like it's more focus on the work rather than focus on the person. And it, it less has this problem of like setting up authorities that you're then inclined to not question, right? It's rewarding an achievement rather than rewarding who you quote unquote are. Yeah, that's a good point. You know what? You know what? I, I think I can get behind that. I think that, I think that, that, that does make sense. Um, because one problem with, with, I think, our endeavor, collective endeavor, is the egos that get involved. Right. So when you start thinking you're eminent, when you're bestowed eminence by, by, by your society um, and then you start thinking yourself as eminent, then ego starts, you know, tripping in. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, you're not working on a prestige hierarchy. You're working with a dominance hierarchy. So evolutionary psychologists talk about these two hierarchies. So one is found in, in all of nature, dominance hierarchies. So you think of chimpanzees, the alpha male who um, through literally sheer force and power, in intimidation uh, ends up being the alpha male. Um, and then you've got prominence hierarchies, or sorry, uh, prestige hierarchies that uh, some people argue, argue are uniquely human. And this is done by skill. Uh, it's done by uh, some achievement and it's very, very fluid. And it's not maintained by force or by dominance. It's maintained by some thing that you've done. And typically, a, uh, a, 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 someone who's at the top of the, of the prestige hierarchy, um, I guess it's bestowed by others, not by him or herself, um, but it's also flexible. It moves around based on, on the norms of the group and, it, and it, it elevates the group as a whole. So when you, when you reward people, you might sh have people shift from prestige to dominance. And that could be corrosive. Right. And uh, just one more advantage, which is uh, very self-centered of me, but as somebody who has to often sit there at the, you know, lunch or whatever at the conference and listen to people's acceptance speeches for these awards, I find that the ones that are like, here's an award for you, the person, people, you know, as a general rule, not everybody, but people tend to give very boring acceptance speeches. And it's like about them and when they were in grad school and the people they knew and blah, blah, blah. Whereas when it's for a paper, I think it's much more likely you're going to get an interesting story about like, how did we start working on this? How did we come up with the idea? What were some of the challenges? That's actually stuff I want to hear about. Right. Um, so I, I think just in terms of the boredom inflicted on the crowd at the award dinners, uh, awards for papers rather than awards for lifetime so achievements. You're telling me you're tired of the rags to riches stories. I started out being a nothing and then oh I worked hard. Oh, my God. So tired. <laughs> I heard one that was amazing. Uh, this is Abe Tesser, uh, long retired, I believe, uh, working as a Georgia State, I forget now. Um, but he, when he retired, so he, he won this Lifetime Achievement Award from the Society of Experimental Social Psychology. And his award was so off the wall, his award speech was so off the wall. Um, it was like, when I retired, I left psychology. I mean, I left. I have not picked up an article. I have not read anything. And I've now designed furniture. And literally his speech was all these pieces of furniture. And he made this incredibly amazing point, which is like, None of it fucking matters, you know? Like, I could have been an engineer. I could have been a philosopher. I ended up a social psychologist. And that's by dint of luck. Uh, and it ultimately said he didn't think anything's meaningful anyway. So he's designing furniture. I'm like, that's a speech that I've not heard very often. You know, I love that. Uh, so not everybody can do that well with that format. But but props to Abe Tesser for really nailing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so I, 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 there's one other point I want to make in my uh, beleaguered uh, defense of uh, eminence. Um, and this is one that I guess I, I'm, I'm a little bit less certain of. Uh, so I want to hear what you, what, what you have to think, uh, what, you, what you have to say, Yoel. Um, and this is an idea of defending eminent, I'm not sure eminent is the right word here, elite. Uh, uh, defending elite institutions. Okay, so 
from my perspective, I think a society is better if more or less, and let, let's stick to universities here, most of the universities are about equal. Um, they get about equal funding from the federal government, the provincial government, what have you. And that happened to be the state in Canada. So uh, most of the universities, there's very little di difference between the quote-unquote elite universities and the non-elite universities. Um, the U.S. is quite different, where you've got uh, you know, a few handfuls of truly elite institutions, the Ivies, of course, but some other private uh, bigwigs on the West Coast as well, like Caltech, like Stanford, a lot of others. And there's some elites that are also uh, public universities, like University of Michigan, uh, for example. Um, now, do you think there is some place in society, so let's say 90% or 95% of, of universities are more or less equal? But 5% or 10% are quote-unquote elite. And by elite, I mean they are selective, uh, based on really rigorous entrance requirements. And uh, not only are the students elite, but the professors are elite. So the professors are all picked for quote-unquote eminence. Um, you know, they don't even hire assistant professors. They only hire associates, who, those people who have, you know, have this kind of selection problem that you were mentioning earlier, but they've already shown a track record of being uh, eminent and kind of letting them play together. Um, do you think there's any role in society for a small, you know, again, not a lot of them, but, but a few of them. Do you think there's any role in society for those kinds of institutions? I don't inherently have a problem with that idea. Um, I would add as a caveat that it seems like in many disciplines, including psychology, there's just a surplus of talent. So I wouldn't read too much into institutional prestige, right? There's so many people who are good at this relative to the number of tenure track jobs that um, I think there's like great people working at like regional state schools just because there's just not that many jobs to be had. Um, so that's a little bit different, right? Because that's like how much should you evaluate the quality of the researcher based on their affiliation? Um what you're suggesting is more like, should there be these like superstar institutions that try and like grab up the best of the best and that maybe get more resources to do their job? I don't have a huge problem with that inherently. Um, maybe if they monopolize all of the funding that could otherwise be spread around, that would be a problem. But I don't think it's per se. Uh, it doesn't bother me. No. Okay. Because I mean, I, I don't know if this is true or, 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 or if there is any evidence for this. Um, but it. It strikes me that if you have a bunch of, again, quote unquote, eminent people, smart, creative, hardworking, industrious, good at everything people and put them all together, that there could be some magic that you create there. There could be some revolutions they create. There could be some real um, uh, major discoveries that you could create or that could happen in a place like that versus a place where the... The rarefied talent is, you know, one or two per place. Um, now, the, the flip side of that is you have egos, right? So all those people think so highly of themselves and they can't, they end up not getting along. I think that's a real problem. Um, but let's assume for a moment that, you know, that problem, we can somehow solve that problem. Yeah, I, I, I think the, the issue is it, nobody disagrees, I don't think, um, that sometimes there's these cases where you just get the right people together and there's some, some sort of alchemy that happens and they're much more productive than the average group of people or than they would have been individually. Now, can you recreate that in this planned way? There, I'm maybe a little more skeptical, right? Maybe you get these big wigs and they're just off giving TED Talks. Um, so I think my skepticism would be in the execution, not in the concept. Right. Okay. So how do you actually make that up? And maybe that, like, you know, that reality constraint of egos is, is, you know, a bigger problem than, than I was, you know, making. Right. Or just anything. that, you know, like, um, well-known people have a bunch of other commitments and they're off being well-known. And I think part of what this requires is that you're really talking to each other a lot and you're open to collaborations and you're just around. Um, and I, I don't know, like a lot of, uh, successful recognized people that I know just have super busy schedules. Right. They're just not there that much because they're traveling all the time. Right. I mean, so what I, the example I'm thinking of is, is elite sports, right? So there, I mean, there's no doubt that the quality of whatever sport it is, hockey, soccer, basketball, is far, far better in the most elite institution out there versus the amateur or junior ranks. I mean, it's just a, one game is beautiful, one game is ugly. Um, 
And there's innovation that happens in the sports in those elite places, as opposed to in the, you know, again, where the, uh, the elite talent is sporadically uh, distributed. Um, but the case you mentioned is when these people have so many other commitments. Otherwise, they're not actually playing together. They're not playing together as a team. They're their own individuals, probably fighting for their own turf, their own space, their own money. And as a result, and because of, maybe because uh, uh, the prestige hierarchy bleeds into the dominance hierarchy, you get these fights. Whereas if you can keep people in prestige land, where really the outlook there is about the group, the welfare of the group is, is what's prominent for, for people who are interested in prestige versus the the outcome of the individual is what people care about in dominance hierarchies. Um, maybe that's the, the, the trick. It's people keeping them in, in, in the one, not the other, but human nature is such that uh, you want to keep what you have. Right. So if you could force all those people to show up there and talk to each other, uh, maybe it would work. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, all right. Well, that's all I have. Uh, that's my... Uh, that's as far as I can defend eminence. Right. Do you feel like your opinion was changed at all by this conversation? My opinion was changed? Uh, well, I mean, I, maybe. <laughs> I'm not, I think about awards. I think about awards. You've convinced me that, that especially the junior level, it is uh, very hard to arbitrate. And maybe we should be rethinking. There are very few paper awards, right? There's not many. That's right. Or more paper. I think more paper awards. That's, a, I think, a really tangible and easy solution. Uh, to, to many of, of these issues. All right. Well, um, I think we've uh, done this topic justice. And as always, uh, if you have comments, questions, disagree with us, please don't hesitate to get in touch.